Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to, to be here. And as Daniel mentioned, this is quite a different topic. If you kind of listen to my bio, um, to look at something um, quite different. Uh, the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission hasn't been covered um, that much um, in the literature on transitional justice, and it's certainly a bit of a departure for me. So this is kind of new research, um, something a bit different. Um, but it does link into a new project that we're doing at King's that we've just started, um, which is on art and reconciliation. So it's looking at the potential role of art and artistic practices in reconciliation activities, primarily focused on the Western Balkans again, um, but with some sort of comparative um, and historical studies included in it as well. So this kind of was part of the spur for that project and kind of um, will form part of it. Um, and there were several sort of drivers for this, and I was asking me before what, what led me to, um, to start looking at the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. And um, one very clear one was that I was living in Canada at the time. We moved back um, to the UK about a year and a half ago, but I was there for five years. Um, and I was there for pretty much the um, duration of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and what was striking about that, actually, somewhat embarrassingly, is that even though I'm interested in transitional justice and interested in ideas around um, justice, reconciliation, um, truth-telling, I wasn't all that aware, certainly not on a daily basis, of what was happening with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, because it wasn't covered that much in the, in the mainstream media. You had to sort of go and seek it out. Um, it represents a very different form of transitional justice, which is why I was quite interested in it as well, in thinking through, you know, having looked at most of my work has been on international criminal justice, which may or may not fall under the broader rubric of transitional justice. There's some arguments there about sort of terminology and what we include in transitional justice, how international criminal justice <coughs> relates to it, how its goals may be the same or different, whether it should be post-conflict justice, etc., etc. So that... That's one aspect that interests me, is how much does this fit into the model of transitional justice, or more personally, what can it tell us about how we might understand transitional justice? And equally, what can it tell us about what we might understand about reconciliation as a purported goal of transitional justice? Um, because the TRC was very much focused on this goal of um, reconciliation. And I'll talk a bit about how it characterised that, how it um, defined reconciliation and how that played out in... Um, in the way that the Commission operated and its, its um, mandate. So that's sort of the drivers for it. Um, I think what's interesting is that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission prompts us to think differently about reconciliation and how it relates to transitional justice and perhaps differently about transitional justice and focus on a less kind of instrumental or normative um, approach, a more creative possibly approach to reconciliation. Um, and this has been quite a refreshing change and quite interesting to me um, as I've kind of shied away from talking about reconciliation in most of my work. You know, kind of looked at the, the way in which these institutions operate and the politics surrounding them um, and the politics of, um, of impact um, in terms of how outreach is conducted and what the effects of that has been. So I've been focused on the political, more political dimensions of international criminal justice as quite refreshing to, to sort of get out of that and focus on something different. Um, and the key, the key thing that I'm interested in with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the key thing that stands out for me is the way in which culture, the way in which arts and artistic practices um, seem have been used 
in the Commission and around the Commission seem to have the potential for opening up um, and to foster discussions, to foster space for um, discussions to take place about reconciliation and for alternative discourses to arise. So it's not just the kind of political um, discourses or the legal discourses that you see in transitional justice, different ideas emerge um, as a result of that, which has its own risks and challenges as well as um, having benefits and opportunities. Um, so my paper, um, as I say, it's on, I've been sort of fiddling around with the the title of it, I think that's slightly different from the one um, that was on the advertised talks. So I apologise for that, but it's the same sort of idea. So it's about unsettling narratives through art and culture at the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission and about truth, reconciliation and resistance in Canada. One of the interesting things is it's not just about reconciliation, it's about resisting those kinds of narratives as well and, um, and being more um, kind of open to different ideas. Um, because this is, Partly because this is new topic for me, um, and partly because I've been suffering from cold all week, I'm going to mostly read my paper, because um, I want to make sure that I don't sort of miss anything out or, or, or miss express anything. Um, I do have some slides, but you'll be pleased to know that they're not all very wordy. It's mostly pictures of things that I wanted to show you um, as part of the talk, so we'll go through that as I, as I go on as well. Um, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was established in June 2008, and it was established to address the legacy of the Indian residential school system, which operated in Canada from about the late 1880s to 1996, when it was finally closed down. And during this period, over 150,000 um, Indigenous children, come from First Nations, Inuit and Métis, were taken away from their families and communities to live in residential schools, and many were subjected to serious mental and physical abuse, as well as general neglect. In the six years of operation, the TRC gathered statements from over 6,000 residential school survivors from across Canada, and the stories are harrowing. Even those who weren't subject to extreme violence suffered what has been called the little atrocities um, of severe loneliness, fear, lack of freedom, racist slurs, and cultural oppression through punishments for speaking their languages for their, or practicing their culture. The residential schools were part of a broader policy aimed at solving the Indian problem, the Indian problem through assimilation. The Deputy Minister of, Minister of Indian Affairs, Duncan Campbell Scott, told a parliamentary committee in 1920 that our object is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic. The abuse meted out was not isolated, nor was the IRS system a historical aberration. It was constituted by and constitutive of the, what's been called the contagion of colonisation. And the indirect and direct legacy of the IRS system reverberated from individual and intergenerational trauma to loss of language and culture that amounted to cultural genocide. And I should say that it wasn't only um, in Canada that this was taking place, there were similar um, programmes in place, um, certainly in Australia, um, then there's been reference to a stolen generation in Australia. Um, and um, in other places as well, there's some court cases um, relating to Kenya with similar sorts of policies having been enacted. Um, so in June 2015, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, issued its final report. And a year later, there was a conference in Winnipeg, which was convened to assess progress on the TRC's 94 calls to action it issued. And this conference, I attended the conference, and... It was interesting because it, in microcosm it seemed to demonstrate the challenges of reconciliation in Canada. 
Um, so at the outset, there was a sense of a collective project rooted in mutual respect and demonstrating the TRC's concept of reconciliation all seemed very positive. But as the days went on, this veneer was unravelled and underneath it, deep clashes were evident, although they were mostly very politely expressed. And what was striking was the perception of us as non-Indigenous scholars and practitioners talking to them as survivors. And what was also clear is that there are multiple pathways to reconciliation which aren't always harmonious, different ideas about what um, that meant. And a key challenge is to overcome what I see as potential dissonance between what's perceived by many as a process embedded in indigenous values and culture, which is characterized by activities that root the experience of the survivors of residential schools in a community and a familial context, and the broader narrative of settler colonialism. So in this paper, I look at the role of culture at the TRC, focusing in particular on the um, role of art and artistic practices and their potential to both reach survivors and to connect with, engage and ultimately to unsettle by exposing what Paulette Regan, who um, wrote a book called Unsettling the Settler, which is where this terminology comes from, um, refers to as the myth of benevolent colonialism that's at the heart of Canada's story of nationhood. While genocide was at the heart of colonial policies towards indigenous communities, it's in culture that there's also potential for social repair, as both symbolic of and constitutive of resilience, and in cultural dialogue there's the potential to open spaces for reconciliation based on mutual respect. Um, so in a sense, as we mentioned before as well, it's, um, there are challenges and difficulties, but it seems to me to be a more positive story to tell than some of the other stories of, of transitional justice, particularly um, international criminal justice and the ICTY, which I've been engaged before. So I'll begin by briefly outlining the history of the TRC and, and talking about where I think it stands in relation to transitional justice and how it defines reconciliation. Then I'll look at a set of discrete examples of arts and artistic practices in and around the TRC that demonstrate, I think, is the potential for art to create space for reconciliation and resistance and to unsettle. And I'll end with some more general observations about the potential for arts to contribute to reconciliation, perhaps in other contexts. So the TRC as transitional justice. The TRC conforms to the model of transitional justice in some respects and not in others. So taken as a whole, the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement on which basis the Commission was established, comprises a set of judicial and non-judicial measures implemented in order to redress the legacy of mass human rights abuses. But we should be careful, I think, about adopting the TJ label uncritically, and in particular about ascribing general goals that are associated with transitional justice to the Canadian TRC. Um, the term itself is whether you've interrogation in this context, in what sense are we invoking transition, and in what sense is it justice? The transition in transitional justice is normally considered to be more immediate and the term not merely descriptive but normative in a sense you're transitioning from a state of um, authoritarianism to democracy in the case of Latin American transitions or a state of war to peace. The idea is it's, it's aiding that transition. Um, and transitional justice is conceived of as a tool not only for addressing the past but for building a better future. So the implication is that justice is a necessary component of transition, um, and but in the Canadian case, neither is this isn't true. It's not a transition from 
um, authoritarianism to democracy. It's not a transition from war to peace in the same sense as many of the other contexts that we know about. Um, there's been minimal direct violence. We can talk about indirect violence or structural violence, and certainly no outright war. But the idea of transition, I think, still stands. Um, and in this case, the nature of the transition that the TRC is supposed to foster is from a colonised relationship to a decolonised one, and one based on mutual respect. So it might more accurately, accurately be cast as transformative, to use Wendy Lamborn's um, characterisation of, of tr transitional justice. The other question is what form of justice is implied? In uh, Ramamani's terms, the TRC is not an instrument of retributive justice, but rather of restorative justice. The Canadian TRC is less concerned with legalist goals of accountability, deterrence and ending impunity, normally associated with international criminal justice, and more concerned with socio-pedagogical goals of establishing a historical record, providing a forum for survivors to be heard, and promoting reconciliation and healing. More, these are more closely attuned to truth commissions. So rather than worry about whether the TRC fits the model of transitional justice and concern ourselves with evaluating it, according to a preconceived framework of aims and objectives, I think it might be more useful to consider what the TRC experience might teach us about the conceptualisation of goals that are associated or articulated in transitional justice efforts across um, different contexts, and in particular the goals that are at the heart of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Truth and Reconciliation. So, the... TRC has as its sort of in, in embedded in its mandate truth and reconciliation, and it echoes the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, in South Africa and other, and other efforts. But what does it mean? How does it define this mandate? How does it define um, truth and reconciliation? So it was designed to be part of... This is, the, this is from the, the TRC's um, definition of... Or, articulation of how it sees truth and the importance of truth in its mandate. So it was supposed to be, it was established as part of a holistic and comprehensive response to the Indian residential school legacy and it was deemed to be in itself a sincere indication and acknowledgement of the injustices and harms experienced by Aboriginal people and the need for continued healing. So it was hoped that the truth of our common experiences will help set our spirits free and pave the way for reconciliation. Survivors shared their stories so that the truth of the residential schools could not be denied, and so that in being confronted with the truth of the past, Canadians would know enough to care and to change. As well as testimonies from their survivors, from survivors and their families, the Commission heard from those who'd worked in the schools, as teachers, administrators, janitors, cooks, and church and government officials. The story that emerged was a complex one, so stories of abuse stood in sharp contrast to some happier memories and the statements of former staff and government and church officials varied widely from expressions of remorse and outrage to defensiveness and denial, as you might expect. And these conflicting stories all form part of the TRC narrative and of the developing dialogue of reconciliation, not as a fixed history or fixed truth in that sense, but as a process of sharing through stories, knowledge and mutual understanding. So reconciliation, so it was a core goal of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the TRC just defined reconciliation as an ongoing process of establishing and maintaining peaceful, res maintaining respectful relationships. 
Is conceptualization of reconciliation as a process rather than an outcome? Chimes with approaches in transitional justice and conflict resolution scholarship that emphasize reconciliation as a dialogue, um, anchored in Lederach, John Paul Lederach's conception of reconciliation as a discursive space in which paradoxical and competing tensions can be mediated of truth and forgiveness, truth versus forgiveness, mercy, and peace versus justice. So these ideas that you have these. Um, concepts in tension um, and reconciliation provides the this, this space in which to mediate dialogue between them rather than coming to a fixed idea about one versus the other. The theme of healing was also prominent in dis discourse around the TRC and the meaning given to the term was significant. So the discourse suggested that there was shared understanding but the object of healing was at odds. Placing emphasis on healing individual trauma and the anger expressed by Indigenous people at their loss and continuing injustice risks pathologising Indigenous people as a problem to be fixed. Rather, it's said it's the system and not the people in it that needs healing. So although Indigenous people understand their need to heal from colonial trauma, most settlers deny that their society is built on a sick foundation and therefore deny that it needs a cure. Um, as the TRC's final report acknowledged, reconciliation is not an ab Aboriginal problem, it is a Canadian one. So the idea that it's not just about healing um, the survivors and the intergenerational survivors of um, residential schools, but it's about um, the process taking place um, within the wider Canadian society, within settler society as well. So linked to healing was this idea of resilience through cultural continuity. And in the context of the TRC, the question of culture, I think, is crucial. The centrality of cultural loss through attempts at assimilation, including the attempted destruction of indigenous culture and languages, is the crux of the intergenerational trauma inflicted on community. Culture, then, is not primarily an issue of individual self-expression, but rather should be conceived in holistic, symbiotic, collective and intergenerational terms, as connected to land <coughs> and resources and to a right of self-determination. So if in this sense cultural loss is the main crime of colonialism, cultural affirmation must be a central aspect of restoration and of re reconciliation. The challenge is to accomplish this without subsuming culture as an alibi or as an excuse for political reform. The answer perhaps lies in the mobilisation of culture as contestation and in conceiving of practices of truth, reconciliation and healing as multiple pathways in a variety of social and political spaces and expressed in a variety of media to include public apologies documentary records or histories, as well as artefacts and artistic representations, protest and resistance. So it's not to say that culture or art should be privileged at the expense of dealing with um, the more political dimensions of the problem, but that it offers different ways of getting into the, um, getting into the issue. So the Canadian TRC provides an opening for thinking think more concretely about the broader goals of transitional justice as a project of social repair and potentially to anchor into transitional justice to positive peace, ideas about positive peace, which requires us to recast our image of transitional justice from a largely instrumental one tied to goals of liberal peace building um, and rooted in the notion of individual accountability and restitution for past atrocities and see it instead as a project addressing structural injustice aimed at restoring and transforming community for the future. So the crime at the heart of the residential schools policy, as said, was not only the litany of abuse documented by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as bad as that was, um, 
The overarching crime was of cultural genocide, and this is front and centre of the TRC's final report, which states in its opening paragraph on page one that for over a century, the central goals of Canada's Aboriginal policy were to eliminate Aboriginal governments, ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate the treaties, and through a process of assimilation, cause Aboriginal peoples to cease to exist as a distinct legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The establishment and operation of residential schools were a central element of this policy, which can be best described as cultural genocide. The object of residential schools was, in the words of Campbell Scott, who was Deputy Superintendent General of the Department of Indian Affairs, um, to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there's no Indian question and no Indian department. According to Prime Minister, then Prime Minister, first Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald, addressing Parliament in 1883, residential schools were designed to separate children from their parents <coughs> who were savages and train them in the habits and modes of thought of white men, essentially to kill the Indian in the child. So between 1883, when the first schools were established, and 1996, when the last one was closed, it's estimated that as many as 150,000 children passed through the system. Life in these schools, as I've mentioned, was lonely and alien. Living conditions were poor. Large numbers of children were, were subjected to systematic sexual, physical and mental abuse. Alone, these experiences, these experiences would be enough to traumatise individuals who were su subjected to them. But overlaying the individual trauma was the collective injury to culture and community. As the TRC final report acknowledges, in establishing residential schools, the Canadian government essentially declared Aboriginal people to be unfit parents. The residential school system was based on an assumption that European civilization and Christian religions were superior to Aboriginal culture, which was seen as being savage and brutal. So one of the most significant harms inflicted by the removal of children from communities was the attack on Indigenous memory and identity rooted in community via the breaking of family ties, the denial of languages and culture, and the eradication of collective storytelling passed through generations. The legacy of the IRS system was individual and collective trauma, characterised as a form of PTSD passed through generations, and manifested in high levels of domestic violence, substance abuse and suicide among Indigenous communities. One survivor noted that there were very few natural deaths in our community. For children and families, it didn't end with residential schools. The term survivor encompasses intergenerational survivors, including those who suffered the legacy of residential schools, even when they did not directly experience them. The impact on women and children was particularly acute. Many women subjected to high levels of domestic violence, as well as um, large numbers of Indigenous women being murdered and missing. And disproportionate numbers of Indigenous children were removed from their homes into care, to the extent that the Canadian government is judged to have substantively failed First Nations children, even after the residential school system was closed and children taken into foster care. The TRC's goal of repairing and revitalising individual and family and community memory as a means of also reshaping shared public memory was informed by and informed the Commission's approach to evidence and testimony. In addition to gathering a large number of documents and archival records, equal weight and voice was given to oral-based history, indigenous legal traditions and memory practices, ceremonies, protocols, and the rituals of storytelling and testimonial witnessing. A significant artefact is the Bentwood box, um, which was crafted out of a single piece of red cedar um, and which travelled with the TRC to all of its national events around Canada 
as the repository for the ceremonial transfer of knowledge into the box, and it's now housed at the um, Canadian Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg. Um, creative expressions through the arts played and continues to play a vital role in the process of reconciliation at the TRC, both, both in activities related to the TRC and beyond it, to the extent that one scholar dubbed it a carnival of culture, Matt James, um, and is recognised in other transitional justice contexts, the arts can provide a creative pathway to reconciliation, breaking silences, transforming relationships, and communicating across cultural divides, and also providing a means of dealing with trauma and restoring human dignity. The culture in this regard is also itself a form of dialogue, which is why the destruction of culture seems to be a particularly heinous crime. A significant number of statements gathered by the TRC were in artistic formats, such as poems, songs, books, video or audio recordings, photographs, performances, blankets, quilts, carvings and paintings. And the arts opened up new and critical spaces for survivors, artists, curators and public audiences to explore the complexities of truth, healing and reconciliation expressed by the TRC. Even before it was established, a growing body of work, including books, films, plays and exhibitions, had sought to bring the history and legacy of residential schools to the wider Canadian public. These included works of fiction, some based on personal memoir, and docudramas such as We Were Children, which was released in 2012, and widely shown. But as the TRC report acknowledges, these works did not only have a um, didactic or pedagogic function, there was also an important role for acts of resistance in what they called irre irreconcilable places, where artists chose to keep their work private or share only with other survivors. So not all of this is happening in the public sphere. Um, some of it is, is closed off and private. Such acts were essential to both individual and collective healing through the reclamation of identity and culture. In a survey of 103 community-based healing projects, the Aboriginal Healing Foundation found that as many as 80% involved cultural activities and traditional healing interventions, and that creative arts practices were highly effective in reconnecting survivors and their families to their cultures, languages, and communities. So it's this idea of, sort of this resurgence and, um, in, of culture and resilience in culture. Also, during the Truth Commission's operation, several major art exhibitions ran concurrently with its national events, featuring work by non-Indigenous Canadians exploring themes of denial, complicity and apology, alongside work by well-known Indigenous artists, some of whom were survivors or intergenerational survivors of residential schools. We'll look at some of those in a minute. So to coincide with the Pathways to Reconciliation conference um, that I mentioned in June 2016, a, a year after the TRC's report was issued, the Winnipeg Art Gallery put on a major exhibition called Making Good to acknowledge the residential school legacy and colonial trauma, and, but also to reveal enduring strength, resilience and courage, and so the objectives of the exhibition. The commission itself also funded several arts projects, and one of these was the Living Healing Quilt um, project, which I've displayed here. So women from across the country contributed quilt blocks, which were then sewn together in three quilts. Just got two of them there, because I could only put two on the slide. Um, the first one here is Schools of Shame, um, and then child prisoners, and the third one is called Crimes Against Humanity. Kirsty Robertson, um, quite a detailed analysis of the project, um, and she interrogated the quilts as documents of trauma, operating in a variety of sites, spaces, ideas, and metaphors. She said that the quilt stands on its head the metaphor of a quilt representing nationhood. The residential school experience 
reflected in the quilt reflects the, the knotty underside, which she calls the knotty underside of um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, um, former Prime Minister of Canada, um, projected this image of Canada as a tapestry with its many threads and colours, its beautiful shapes and its intricate subtlety idea of the um, successful multiculturalism in, in Canada. And as such, the living healing quilt, with its stories of abuse and neglect, also stands in stark contrast to the metaphor of benign nationhood, which is represented in the quilt of belonging, which is a quilt that was sponsored by the Canadian Museum of Civilization, um, which has now been renamed the Canadian History Museum, Museum of History, and the Hudson's Bay Company, which was presented by the lead artist, Esther Bryan, as representing a lasting testament to our country's multicultural heritage and identity. So this, this quilt kind of turns the idea of those... Um, those quilts on its head, the idea of um, Canada as a successful multicultural tapestry and exposes this knotty underside of it. And it also presents a counter-narrative to the metaphorical representation of quilting and sewing as a docile Christian and white middle-class femininity. The quilt is seen by Robertson as an emancipatory text, subverting this narrative with sections depicting fractured domesticity, children taken from their homes and brought into institutions where they were taught domestic arts such as sewing and quilting, as part of what she calls a biopolitical project of assimilation. This also serves to highlight the domestic sphere as a significant site for the colonization of First Nations women and children. For Robertson, this adds to the impact of the quilt, a sewn project that documents traditional cultures thought to have disappeared, contemporary cultures revitalized, and domestic practices of the handmade bound inextricably together. I think that's one of the things that's significant about arts and artistic practices is the way that they can meld these different sort of themes and tropes um, together, the traditional and the new example. As such, the quilts can be understood as acts of reclama reclamation, remembering and healing. As another important artistic intervention, which was also on the theme of tapestry, um, was the witness blanket. This was inspired by a woven blanket and created by master carver Kerry Newman. And it's a large-scale art installation. The pictures, this is just a section from it. Um, but you can see here, this is um, the witness blanket displayed in the Canadian Museum of Human Rights um, in Winnipeg. It's, it, it can be packed up into small containers and it's taken around, so it's a roving exhibition. Places. But that kind of gives you a sense of the size of it. So that's one half and then the door is in the middle and then that's the other half of it. And it's made up of um, lots of different um, objects, artifacts, um, that either represent the Indian residential schools experience, taken from the sites um, of the schools, um, bits of braided hair, shoes, um, notepads, gloves, all left behind. Um, so, this blanket, as I say, was displayed in the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Um, it's a roving national monument to recognise the atrocities of the Indian res residential school era, honour the children and symbolise ongoing reconciliation. That was on the last slide. So these initiatives have multiple, multiple functions, being at the same time pathways to healing truth and reconciliation through the creative process and also sites of commemoration. The arts and artistic practices may serve to shape public memory in ways that are potentially transformative for individuals, communities and national his history. And this um, 
exhibition in particular is interesting because it, it was a participatory project where once you had had a look at the quilt and um, considered it, you were invited to write um, or type in one word that represented how you um, responded to it. So, and then those words are obviously taken in and put into a word cloud representing this mapped each of those words is set. And this is just how it happened to look when I was there um, in June 2016. Um, you see the kinds, of, the kinds of responses to it. It's quite interesting in terms of not just having an exhibition and um, having people engage with it, but in fostering um, sort of deeper engagement. And then this serves as, a, as then a, a kind of living exhibition of its own, of, of people's responses. Um, So also significant in the TRC um, and its, um, its activities is the recognition in highlighting arts and artistic practices as implicitly and explicitly recognising the resilience and helping to foster a resurgence of indigenous culture, which was the object of destruction. So the centrality of cultural loss and the means of addressing it, I think, is what makes this experience unique. On the other hand, of course, there's a risk that in prioritising arts and artistic practices, especially creative practices that are rooted in the domestic, such as quilting, and in indigenous practices, such as carving, it's only serving once again to compartmentalise and pathologise survivors' experiences. And in this sense, culture risks becoming a distracting technique, an alibi for more substantive reform. And taking these two projects, it's worth noting too that the metaphor of the blanket has negative as well as positive connotations in the history of settler colonialism. The other enduring story associated with the famous striped Hudson Bay Company blankets, which are on this slide, I don't know how many of you would recognise them, um, is not that of comforting those in need, the hardiest adventurers during fierce Canadian winters, but as, of carri as carriers of death via European diseases. And they were given to indigenous communities carrying, and the blankets themselves were infested with smallpox um, and tuberculosis. So it's a kind of <laughs> disjointed um, uh, trope or image of, of colonialism as well. And this was explored, this kind of disconnect was explored in an exhibition at the first TRC national meeting in Winnipeg in 2010, where a textile piece made up of um, Hudson's Bay blankets um, was embroidered in the centre with a statement by Stephen Harper, who was then um, Canadian Prime Minister, um, to say that we have, in Canada, we have no history of colonialism. And that was sewn at the centre of the blanket, and then the blanket was displayed. And again, this is a sort of participatory art project where um, we're invited to write their responses to the blanket and to Harper's statement here. And then at later events, um, there were sewing circles convened where the responses were sewn into the blanket, so the blanket changes too every time it's exhibited. Um, just want to show you one more exhibit. This is also at the currently at the <coughs> Canadian Human Rights Museum, and this is um, a project called the Red Dress Project by artist um, Jamie Black, which is also a roving exhibition. 
So this uses empty red dresses to draw attention to the plight of the thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. So it's the dresses um, signify the absence. And the reason it's displayed in the museum with trees at the back is because in the roving exhibitions which displayed in lots of different places, but usually outside and sometimes just in parks with the dresses kind of just hanging um, randomly from those trees. So Matt James, who talked about the carnival of culture, characterises this victim-centred approach of the TRC, in which the adoption of indigenous culture, legal traditions and ways of knowing were integral to the Commission's work. And he talks about that as carnivalesque. And whilst this had obvious advantages over top-down approaches, where the needs of victims are often ignored or at best sublimated into the agenda of the state or the international actors driving the process, James argues that the net effect of adopting a victim-centred approach in the TRC only served to emphasise the experiences of the victims over the deeds of perpetrators. And what was lacking for James was a forensic and wide-ranging investigation to highlight individual and institutional acts of commission and therefore to provoke discomforting forms of introspection. So the TRC, in avoiding questions of accountability and foregrounding indigenous conceptions of truth, reconciliation and healing, is cast by James as engaging in the politics of distraction. So yet another exercise of affirmative repair or settler magic, as he calls it, aimed at staving off demands for the restitution of stolen lands. So I think he's right that the TRC is limited insofar as it cannot deliver retributive justice um, and further that the burden of introspection ought to be placed on those who bear the weight of colonial wrongdoing. So the task, as Paulette Regan characterises it, of unsettling the settler within. I don't think the former necessarily precludes the latter, though. There's definitely a risk that the way in which the TRC narrowly frames the residential schools issue and the unwitting perpetuation of stereotype, stereotypes of indigenous, indigenous ways as, as being somehow other might contribute to further pathologising residential school survivors as helpless therapeutic subjects that need to be healed by a paternalistic state. And this idea is encouraged by media coverage of the TRC that perpetuates the residential school syndrome trope. If the truth is limited to the residential school's experience and reconciliation and healing are conceived of in this light as individual therapy, the TRC is unable to address the wider economic and political structures of inequality and racism that persist and are perpetuated in gendered um, and racist, sexist and racist attitudes towards indigenous women and in child welfare policies that continue to remove children, not to residential schools anymore, but to foster care. And yet, as James notes, the TRC was not imposed from above, but rather reflects the expressed needs and aspirations of indigenous people, for whom healing is a major priority, and truth is associated not with official records and legal proceedings, but with the voices and personal stories of survivors. So by privileging these stories and voices, the TRC performatively overturns the, the pedagogy of residential schools. The challenge is therefore not to fall prey to, this, to what James calls the sociology of knowledge, that elides settler introspection by emphasising survivor needs. There's potential, as Rosemary Nagy argues, for the TRC's dialogical potential to provide opportunity for bottom-up transformation among settler communities. And I also see potential in James's invocation of the carnivalesque to do that, even if he doesn't. But rather than change the TRC from an indigenous-led and inspired process to one that better fits dominant methodologies of inquiries as we understand them, isn't part of the promise and potential of the TRC to promote engagement in a spirit of mutual respect. 
as per the definition of reconciliation, not only to say sorry for what I did, but to unsettle the premise on, what the I, on which the IRS were based, namely that we know how to do things better than you do, and in so doing break the patterns of interaction that have dominated relations between indigenous and settler communities up to now. If the barriers to understanding and introspection are not, for the most part, deliberately set, removing them, I think, requires a more imaginative framing than is suggested by simply adopting the more familiar methodologies. Bridget Story argues that while the TRC itself may not have achieved this, the new conversations around reconciliation and Indigenous resurgence sparked by the TRC are promising, suggesting that now that the process is over, the carnival of truth can begin. And in this, she draws on insights from the work of Lederach, again, who argued that the critical yeast in transformation of social relationships required for reconciliation could be generated by putting the not like-minded and not like-situated in dialogue. And in this context, culture can be an important site of dialogue and of contestation. So in this vein, groups like Idle No More and the Indigenous Nationhood Movement are spearheading initiatives to foster Indigenous resurgence, which doesn't necessarily conform to... Um, the kinds of um, narratives of reconciliation, but rather those of resistance. So in 2012, Idle No More took to the streets with drumming, singing and flash mob dances across Canada. The Indigenous Nationhood movement, meanwhile, was engaged in a project of insurgent education, which aimed to raise awareness by people making people uncomfortable in the place where they live. So an example of this is um, signs that are put up indicating whose land various sites are on, so welcome to Siouxland, etc. Um, at the conference in Winnipeg in 2016, an American artist and academic called Edgar Heap of Birds um, showed some of his work, including these posters, which are called Insurgent Messages for Canada. And these, this is a picture of the posters displayed in central Winnipeg. Um, but previously they'd been displayed on bus stops around Vancouver, so they're bus stop size posters at the end, so people look at them and then they're giving a, a, um, a surprising message, um, such as Imperial Canada, share stolen lands, stop black robes, abuse. <coughs> so said some of these were displayed um, during the conference. So it may be that the transformative potential of the TRC will be dictated not by the process itself, but by what happens next, so what comes afterwards. There's a sense in some quarters of a seismic, a seismic shift in Canada towards Indigenous resurgence. And whether or not this will foster the kind of seismic shift that's required among the non-Indigenous population to be sufficiently unsettled to begin to reimagine Canadian history and relations among its people remains to be seen. The challenge for the TRC during its proceedings and for those implementing its recommendations was to navigate multiple pathways to reconciliation that balanced acknowledgement of harm on many levels, individual trauma, familial and community rupture, and that wrought by historical and structural injustice. I should try and accommodate all of those. And on the one hand, the victim-centred focus of the TRC can be cast as yet another attempt to solve the Indian problem or critiqued as perpetuating a politics of distraction in which the focus on indigenous ways of reconciliation and healing provides an alibi for dealing with broader issues of social injustice. But on the other hand, the way in which indigenous communities are engaged with the TRC, and in particular the carnivalesque nature of performative engagement, is I think a powerful statement of resurgence and provides strong potential for dialogue. 
The onus is on the settler to listen and to open, be open to being unsettled. And this in itself is not going to resolve the structural inequalities and injustice, which are at the heart of what's essentially a contestation over land. But it might be a start, having established relations characterised by mutual respect and thus establishing a different basis for negotiations. So what does all of this tell us about reconciliation? The picture um, of reconciliation is, as we know, deeply complicated and not, um, not easy to, um, to define. But I think what the Canadian experience, what the TRC experience has shown is that we can't measure it. Um, it's wrong-headed to measure it in terms of outcomes, but it's best to think of it in terms of an ongoing process, ongoing processes of building relationships and mutual respect that are crucial to social repair. And reconciliation in this context is therefore understood as the space in which dialogue occurs. And art and artistic practices can be a means through which to communicate as an alternative to more formal policy or academic discourses. But it shouldn't replace them, and nor should it be somehow appropriated so that we slip into what um, Jonathan Dewar has called a colonising gaze. There's therefore a delicate balance to be struck when ensuring that it reaches non-Aboriginal and non-Indigenous audiences. <coughs> but there's also enormous potential to unsettle and to challenge and the potential to try to develop methodologies to explore the role of arts um, and artistic practices in other contexts. So that I'll end, um, and look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you. Thank you.